We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. And uh, I'm proud to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners on the land of which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Ollie Dove and today we'll be talking about doping in sport with Kate McMasters. So Ollie, can you tell me a little bit more about what we're going to be getting into today? Sure can, Neve. Hi Kate, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Now Kate, you're into your second year of your PhD at the University of Tasmania studying doping in sport. And specifically, you look into the effects of insulin, or the possible effects. So to start off today, can you explain to us what exactly is doping? Okay, so doping involves the use of illegal or illicit uh, substances or methods by athletes. They can be elite, sub-elite, um, to help enhance their performance. Yep. And what part of doping are you looking into? Uh, so I'm specifically looking at insulin doping and how... The use of exogenous insulin, so exogenous meaning insulin delivered from outside the body, Mm -hmm. uh, may help to enhance an athlete's performance Mm -hmm. and also how we can detect that insulin doping as well. Mm -hmm. So before I met you, I'd only ever associated insulin with diabetic treatment. So how do athletes use insulin? Uh, So it's not really well known, but it's kind of assumed that they can be... um, using both insulin, like injecting insulin and also injecting glucose at the same time or taking increased glucose in their diet to help increase their glucose into their muscles. Mm -hmm. And why would they do that? What advantage would that give them? So glucose is uh, the molecule that we need to help create energy. So when you're playing sport, uh, you could use that glucose to help you potentially run faster or longer. Um, Insulin may also help with the recovery process as well. Uh, So if you recover in a shorter time period, then you can perform better later on or you can perform earlier. There's a lot of effects of insulin. It can also help increase um, blood flow to working muscles and they're the main ones and also potentially increase protein uptake into the muscles as well or decrease protein degradation. So if it helps with those things, are there particular groups of athletes that would be specifically interested in using insulin as a doping? Like particularly yeah. if it helps with muscle laydown or use of protein, you'd think that that might help someone that needs a high muscle ratio yeah. to their other muscles rather than somebody who needs to be like really lean like an endurance athlete. Yeah, it's really interesting because the effects of insulin are very broad, whereas a lot of drugs um, are targeted towards, so we say, anaerobic athletes that don't really use oxygen. So it's like the short time frame. So like weightlifting, short sprints and stuff, or aerobic athletes, which would be like marathon runners or like elite cyclists. So insulin can actually probably potentially help both of those groups based on the different effects of insulin. Are there specific groups of athletes already using insulin for doping? Uh, We are kind of thinking it's probably more the weightlifters, bodybuilders, people that um, are looking for an increase in their muscle mass. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And are there any types of doping that are unintentional? That's kind of a controversial uh, statement, I suppose. Uh, a lot of athletes would say that it's unintentional. Some of the traces that are found in their uh, samples, uh, it can sometimes be unintentionally taken through uh, protein supplements. So actually, if I don't know the exact numbers, but potentially like one in, I think it's about one in five of the main protein supplement options on the market actually have illicit substances in them. Wow. Yeah. That's quite so, a high portion. Yeah. So you actually need to be really aware of what supplements you may be taking. Interesting. Yeah. So with the Olympics and things, it's very common for those athletes to get tested and it's widely known that they're being tested. But with athletes that aren't performing at that professional level, how common is it for that testing to occur? Yep. So it's probably actually not as common as you would think, the doping testing. Um, Usually athletes are only getting tested if they finish in the top, you know, like three people in an event, Uh, like if they make the podium, if they've had a large increase in performance from, you know, their last event. You also, there's national testing pools. So whilst there are Olympians, there's also people that play the AFL and other like national competitions. So they would also be on the testing pool. Really, it's actually really random. Uh, so people can be tested in their homes at 10 o'clock at night, just a knock on the door. But I'm not exactly sure of the differences between elite and sub-elite. And do you know if there's any negative effects of doping? So oh, we've yeah. talked a lot about that people might use it as an enhancement specifically for insulin, mm-hmm. but quite often it's people using something that we do within our bodies produce that um, you know, I've also thought it interesting that sometimes people will be at like a genetic advantage if their body just happened to produce more creatine or it mm. happened to produce more insulin um, or if they had um, a higher like blood count. But what are some of the harms of doping? So it definitely varies depending on the drugs. A lot of sex, uh, so sex hormones are taken, so testosterone, so that can affect both men and women differently. And then a lot of drugs kind of wholly can lead to cardiovascular, you know, health risks such as heart disease, uh, also stroke potential, um, increased blood viscosity, so thicker blood, which can then promote these uh, changes. There's also some drugs that may increase in cardiac muscle mass as well, so that can lead to a potential heart attack. Athletes shouldn't be taking drugs at all because also a lot of the health effects aren't known, so better safe than sorry. Does this sort of link into the Goldman Dilemma? And if so, could Mm. you explain what that means? Okay, so the Goldman Dilemma is uh, a question that was asked maybe 70 years ago now uh, to a small group of athletes. And, well, there were two questions. One was, would you take a magic pill if you could win an Olympic medal? And then there was also another scenario where, would you take this pill given that you would die five years after, after winning? It was originally reported that, you know, like 50% of athletes would take this pill, except it's now being kind of determined that that's incorrect and maybe only 2% of athletes would do that or 4%, depending on the scenario. But, yeah, and so recently it's come out that athletes are a lot more aware of the health effects and are conscious of that and they wouldn't risk their life for the potential consequences. Which is a good thing. Yes, yeah, that is good. (laughs) You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us and in just a moment we'll be talking more to Kate McMaster about her PhD in sport doping. 
You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about doping in sport. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with Kate McMaster from the University of Tasmania. So, Kate, what made you want to pursue a PhD in this field? Um, oh, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, I would say initially I had quite an interest in the philosophy behind doping in sport, and then whilst I was in my honours, I was looking for a PhD project, and what project would help me in the long run and also what would accommodate my passions as well. So both a combination of exercise sports science and also physiology um, and looking at such an important field in sport I thought would be quite exciting as well. Yeah. And it's very interdisciplinary yeah. um, if I'm right in thinking in that you have the pharmacy side but also social sciences. So how exactly is doping important in such a diverse range of fields? Sport is just very important to society and to culture, not only in Australia, but all over the world. And to understand doping, you really need to look at it from a bunch of perspectives. You can't think about doping without thinking about the athlete, without thinking about the spectator, um, without thinking about the drug, without thinking about the sport itself. So you kind of have to consider all aspects to really move forward, I suppose. And how are you going to go about doing that? Um, so I have uh, a few different studies uh, in the pipeline at the moment. So the first one is about just looking at a few different drugs, but particularly insulin and seeing the actual doping prevalence within the community. Um, so that will be done through an anonymous questionnaire online. So hopefully we'll actually get better understanding of how many people are actually doing insulin. Because currently the figures that are released through the adverse analytical finding reports from WADA are actually very, very low. So there was only one person that doped with insulin, I think, like two years ago in their last report, except there's a lot more reports like amongst the community of people using these drugs. So that'll be one aspect. And then another aspect will be an actual clinical trial to look at the effects of insulin on the body, um, the physiology, and then looking at the performance and then... Again, so using kind of analytical chemistry, so another aspect to see how insulin can be detected in different samples in the, from the body. So for your first study where you're delivering a questionnaire and that self-report, do yeah. you have any, what sample are you using? Like is that a national Australian sample of professional athletes or more cross-sectional than that and international? Um, so it would just be based in Australia and we are hoping to reach out to uh, so sporting clubs, affiliations within Australia to help get a, a quite diverse range of athletes to um, make the results more applicable to sport in Australia. And what kind of things will you look for? Will you look for like what level they're playing, you know, semi-professional, professional, amateur, and the type of sport they're playing and the frequency, or what other factors are you considering rather than just if they're taking insulin? So demographics, participant demographics, uh, we'll be looking at, we're going to separate our participants into three different groups. So the first one will just be elite athletes and whether they are in these registered pools for testing and athletes will know that. And then we are also going to be looking at um, one group of weightlifters, bodybuilders and um, powerlifters. They'll also be kind of one community and then the other group will just be the general population. Do you have the opportunity to collect any like specimens to verify their oh. self-report? Um, no, that would be a very big task. But these anonymous reports in the past have shown uh, very 
like uh, interesting figures of mm-hmm. upwards of around 50% of athletes actually admitting to doping in the past, specifically mostly in athletic events or cycling uh, or weightlifting. What sort of incentive is there for an athlete to take part in that? Because presumably it's all anonymous, so that's why they can be honest. But if I was an athlete doping, I would still be scared to be to even take part in such a survey. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, there are a lot of athletes, well, the majority of athletes are very um, anti-doping and would like to help contribute to this sort of research. It will be probably slightly more difficult to get the athletes that are not necessarily that way inclined and are doping except this has worked in the past so hopefully athletes are inclined to help out and if we disseminate this information to coaches or the clubs themselves hopefully when we deliver like a poster athletes will be inclined to go and do the 15 minute survey yeah so if it's a just a kind of litmus test of how many people are taking insulin are you looking at confounding things that are contributing to why they're taking insulin um not necessarily that's probably that could be a study a follow-up uh, yeah, yeah. Follow-up mm. study because really at this point there is no information yeah. to determine you know how many people are taking insulin and we have so many questions because we are also asking about other drugs as well mm-hmm. um that it would be quite difficult to then gather that information as well yeah so are you looking for this sample to be like representative of athletes in australia or like how do you decide how many participants you need to recruit yeah, so we are aiming for around 500 athletes. Those are numbers that have been used previously in Australia, uh, similar studies, and then around 1,500 general pop, and it'll be uh, a lot less for just the weightlifting community as well, so less than 500. Um, so for the general population, do you mean like people who are active in the general public or people who are just random yeah, advertising just random. on social media? Yeah, random. We did initially think of um, asking more demographic questions based on their physical activity levels or their um, involvement in sport, except that did make it more difficult and it's not really necessary at this point to know that. So why are you collecting information from the general public to compare against? Yes, yeah, so we also want to understand the effectiveness of the current anti-doping protocols and uh, education systems that are in place at the moment. Um, So also looking at safety knowledge as well, uh, like understanding of the drugs. So if the general pop have the same knowledge as athletes, um, maybe the current anti-doping protocols aren't uh, very effective um, within the athletic community. So rather than comparing rate of insulin use for sports performance, you're comparing educational awareness of sport doping. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's pretty yeah. interesting. And with the clinical study that you're doing to look at the actual physical effects of insulin, who takes part in that? Um, so that will probably be men aged between the ages of around 18 to usually around 30 or 35. That are um, This actual population group will be kind of sub-elite athletes or very highly active athletes or individuals. Um, just because then it's more comparative between each individual. So the study should actually be taking place, hopefully, in Copenhagen. Um, so we'll, act- we'll be getting individuals from Copenhagen to complete the study. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. And the reason it's only men in the study is that so you can control sex? Yeah. Unfortunately, at the moment, we don't understand a lot about... Uh, there's too many variables with women, so... 
firstly the study will be conducted in men and then hopefully in the future we can also look at women and the effects on women as well. So how are they going to control delivering insulin to these mm. athletes and observe it? Like what kind of things are they going to measure? Uh, so we'll be looking from the delivery perspective. Uh, or just more information about the protocol of the randomised control trial. Um, okay, <laughs> that's a bit complicated. But um, so they'll be delivering insulin with glucose at a set rate for around two hours and we'll be measuring blood glucose throughout that time. Um, so it'll be based on body weight and um, delivering glucose based on that. Um, and then that's kind of the most important variable for... So it's the control of blood glucose while they're delivering insulin. Yeah. And then, so they're going to have to perform any tasks or have any... Yep. Oh, so they'll be hopefully performing a Wingate assessment, which is a short 30-second uh, sprint cycling test so they put on a bike and we just ask them to go as hard as they can for 30 seconds and that's against a resistance. It's a really tough test. It is a very <laughs> tough test for those that have com um, completed it would understand. And then we'll also be doing a time trial performance test. So asking them to ride for hopefully 40 kilometres and then seeing their performance. So are there cyclists that you're looking at? Because those are two cycle-based activities. Yeah. Uh, they don't actually have to be cyclists. Uh, that's just a really common form of exercise delivery in studies because it's um, easy to complete for people that haven't cycled, whereas running is a lot more difficult. So if it's a randomised control trial, are they delivering the insulin and glucose to one group and then seeing how they perform on those two tests and then not delivering it to another group and seeing how the control group perform on those two tests? Uh Yes. <laughs> we also have um, another variable of um, uh, asthma puffer drugs. So it would be like using salbutamol as well. So we haven't fully finalised that protocol and it really depends on uh, COVID and whether we can complete the clinical trial, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So we are waiting a few months to really refine the protocol as well. With the asthma inhaler, are you looking at um, if someone's adding that to their doping or someone with asthma and the effect of insulin on their doping? Because asthma pump is a medication. Yeah. So are you looking at if someone with asthma is oh, doping? Oh, no. Or no. If, okay. um, just healthy individuals uh, without any concomitant um, disease. Oh, I don't mm. know how to say that. Diseases, <laughs> yeah. Um, so insulin actually oh, – sorry – Salbutamol or beta-2 agonists or asthma puffers, they're all kind of interchangeable, um, may actually affect glucose delivery to a cell and also insulin release. So it's not actually related to the effects on um, inspiration and delivery of oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> so is the with trying to understand... The physiology of insulin. What are the main physiological parameters that you'll be looking at? So, oh, but like from. So you mentioned that you'll be looking at the glucose in the bloodstream. Mm. Are there other physiological things like that you'll be looking at from the performance um, uh, after the exercise performance? Yeah, or before. I'm kind okay. of trying to get a feel for the primary and secondary outcomes of the study. Yeah. So, well, mostly we're looking at exercise performance. So. Before they complete the study, they will be tested for their time trial performance and wing gate. Mm -hmm. And then they'll go through this trial 
where they're going to be delivered insulin and glucose and then we'll look at those performance measures again. So it'll be things like respiratory rate, um, power output, uh, ventilatory threshold. Um, so it's going to be more um, not necessarily cellular for mm-hmm. those aspects. And then we will take bloods as well and urine and then we can use that to later detect um, if there have been changes. There. Interesting. So, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. What was the third study? Um, so we're actually splitting the clinical trial into two aspects. So one will be the effects on physiology and performance and then the other will be um, the detection, so the analytical processes there, and then the online survey. And then there will also be um, kind of a um, position piece as well that's written based on abductive reasoning and the likelihood that insulin is performance enhancing and why it should be uh, legal, uh, illegal, <laughs> not legalized. <laughs> ah, yeah. okay. That's so brilliant and really fascinating topic to get into. So stick with us listeners for part three as we talk to Kate about an important society she's actually just founded at our university. <laughs> You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with Kate McMaster. So far, we've been talking about sport doping, but we're going to change tracks now and talk about Kate's work outside of her studies. Kate, you've just established the Women's Society at the University of Tasmania. Why did you set it up? Oh, that's loaded. <laughs> okay, uh, probably about a year ago, um, I, you know, I was listening to some podcasts around feminism and I realised my own internalised misogyny. And um, so I just started listening to more podcasts and maybe doing some more reading. Uh, and then I was looking for a club or society at UTES to join. Um, there was, you know, a women's society, but I couldn't find one. So I thought, um, why not just start one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was an easy task, but apparently not. <laughs> what steps were involved in setting it up? Uh, so we had to get a committee, which was, uh, it took a little while to, um, you know, wrangle women that were interested, but we have found plenty of women to help us that are really keen and passionate about the society. Um, There's obviously a lot of other behind the scenes things as well Mm -hmm. um, that had to happen. What sort of events do you put on as a society? So we're only really a month into having formed, we will, we're holding morning teas once a month and then also afternoon teas once a month. So at the morning teas, it's mostly just meeting other people and just um, kind of a free chat and just a space for women to um, talk. And then the afternoon teas are a bit more structured and we talk about kind of a specific issue and we have some questions, we have some videos um, and we just kind of discuss those topics for two hours. How do you respond when someone asks or when someone Mm. sort of points out that a women's society is exclusive to men? Yeah. Um, We actually haven't had a lot of pushback about that, especially considering the current climate, especially in Parliament. Um, But when we have had some people talk about it, um, 
you know, it's great for us. We like to listen and engage them, with them in a discussion rather than just refuting them. Um, but we think it's really important that women have a safe space women, sorry, non-binary and non-conforming individuals as well, a safe space to talk about their experiences, especially because sometimes it might be quite confronting for them to be in a space with men and talk about these things. Um, We will, however, also in the future be holding events where men are able to come along because we do think it is important that they're a part of these conversations. Um, So there is a space for them within our society. It's just not uh, 100% of the time. And do you have to be a student at UTAS to be involved? Uh, no, not at all. Um, just You just have to identify as a woman, non-binary or non-conforming individual. And you can also be a man and become a member as well. Um, so we are open to all members of the community. Mm-hmm. And how do you... Um, because your field is, if I'm right in thinking, quite male-dominated, your PhD field. Mm. So did that have any play into the reason why you wanted to build this supportive network? Um, Not necessarily. I think personally I wanted to start this network to really start from the ground level and thinking about things and um, why we are the way we are and maybe how women interact with other women and why we have all these um, biases as well. Um, I don't feel like I've necessarily struggled in a male-dominated field, uh, but then it's important to discuss why I feel like I haven't struggled and maybe it's based on my personality type and then, you know, these are all um, important topics to discuss based like around women as well, mm. for women. How could someone um, get involved? How could our listeners get involved with the society? Yep, so we have... Uh, social media accounts so we have an instagram and a facebook so you can find us at utes women's society um or we also have an email at utes women's society at gmail.com um so if people want to contact us if they would like to be a part of the society and be a part of the committee that would be great as well so we're we're very open to um everyone getting involved if they'd like to Great. Thanks so much, Kate and Ollie. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-ready content. Hope you enjoyed the show. As always, if you did, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast or look us up on social media. That's Science Taz. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman. And once again, I'd like to thank my co-host, Ollie Dove, for her prep and our guest, Kate McMaster. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.